Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. Today will be a solo episode for episode 22, titled Clodius Really Unhinged. Brendan and I tried to record actually three times on Zoom and on Skype, but the internet connection I have here in my apartment is so poor that it keeps kicking me out of the call. And so finally, you know, after two days of trying, we gave up because we want to get an episode out to the audience. And this one's going to be a solo episode. In the meantime, I'm going to work on figuring out a better setup for the internet or find somewhere else to record. But Brendan will be back on the podcast eventually. Now, one more announcement. The podcast is going to be moving from a weekly podcast right now. It releases every Thursday to a bi-weekly podcast or twice a month. And it's going to be on the, let's see, I think we're going to do the second and fourth Thursday of each month. And I say the second and fourth because this episode is being recorded on the 22nd. It'll come out on the 29th and then that'll give us, that'll start us on the bi-weekly because the next episode would be November 12th. Okay, well, there's probably more dates than the audience cares to hear, but just wanted to make that announcement. And the reason why is that right now, there's a lot of things I want to do with the podcast, such as making a website, creating some merchandise for the audience, creating social media channels to communicate with the audience, and the outlines that are getting bigger and bigger because there's more and more sources as Caesar's life gets later. So all these things going on has had me running around like crazy trying up until the last minute to get the podcast uploaded and out on a Thursday. And I don't want to put out rushed episodes for the audience. I want to have a well-crafted product that we can be proud of each week. So from now on, it's going to be bi-weekly. It could be that in the future, eventually we go back to weekly, but right now it's a single one-man show. Brendan is here and he helps with the podcast, but he kind of just joins on each recording. The editing or the responsibility for the editing and getting it uploaded in the social media is all me, so it's a lot to handle for one person. So bi-weekly it is. And one milestone I want to, or really, I don't know if it's a milestone or a bit of a more of an achievement, at the March of History has hit that I want to tell you guys about. We now have listeners in 26 different countries around the world, which just astounds me. I mean, this podcast started out just friends and family listening, and now 26 different countries around the world, we have listeners. So for all those around the world and in the US, thank you for listening, and and we appreciate your support. So back to the history at hand, episode 22. We left off in episode 21 with Clodius being elected tribune. He made a deal with Cicero so that Cicero would not try to block his legislation from being passed, and he promised Cicero that he would not prosecute him, specifically for the execution of the Catalinarian conspirators. And Cicero bought this. Whether that was a mistake or not, we'll find out soon enough. But Cicero bought this and and didn't stop Clodius from passing his legislation. So Clodius, of course, reenacted the guilds or the collegia and turned them into paramilitary organizations. And they've occupied the steps of the Temple of Castor and Pollux, which is directly in the Forum. They've dismantled the steps to the temple, essentially making it so that it's it's a giant platform a big concrete platform that people can't get up to unless presumably somebody throws a ladder down for you. And why is he doing this? He's he's essentially, he's turning this 
temple in the, in the middle of Rome, in the heart of political life, into a fortress for his gangs to operate out of. And they'd begun heckling and booing people in the forum that Clodius doesn't like and cheering him whenever he walks by. And this is all very chaotic. And yet it, it seems like there's not as much of an outcry in Rome about this as there should be. After all, if Caesar did a fraction of what Clodius is doing, turned a temple into a fortress for his gangs to heckle people in the streets, the optimists would be up in arms. They would be losing their minds about this. But Clodius, he comes from an extremely well-connected patrician family, the Claudii. And the Julii, Caesar's family, yes, they go back further in the Republic and to the time of the kings. And the Claudii don't go back quite that far, but the Claudii had been very dominant in power throughout Rome's Republic. Versus the Julii held some powerful positions early on and then pretty much fell off until Julius Caesar came around. And so the Claudii, they're extremely powerful. There's a lot of them, and they've held the consulship and every other high position for generation after generation. So they are extremely well-connected in Rome, and it seems that many people are very hesitant to go against Claudius or Clodius because of this. And the Claudii are known to stick together and look out for each other. So it's a very dangerous enemy to pick. And for all these reasons, it seems that Clodius is getting away with things that the Optimates would never let Caesar get away with. But Clodius is just getting started. Now, going back to Caesar, you remember the Optimates tried to get Caesar, tried to bring him to trial for his consulship and, and the things that he did in his consulship a few times already, but were unable to. Well, now they decide to attack his subordinates instead. He's a proconsul, he's a governor, so he has a proquaestor that accompanies him to his province. And the Optimates soon take this proquaestor and they arraign him on charges of various accounting irregularities. Or I can only assume it's accounting irregularities because the quaestor handles the money of Rome. And we're told by Plutarch that this is actually a first step to getting at Caesar. Kind of the way the FBI would go at a, at a mafia arrest some lower-level guys, get them to flip and give information, and work your way up to the big fish. So the Optimates really do have a plan here to get Caesar. But what happens is, for whatever reason, the quaestor, Caesar's quaestor, appeals to Clodius, who's a tribune, for help. I don't know why he doesn't appeal to his main benefactor, Caesar, who is his proconsul. Maybe he did appeal to Caesar behind the scenes, and Caesar said, go to Clodius and let's see how he handles it. And Clodius decides that this is a perfect opportunity for him to use his new gangs and to see how they can enact his will on Rome. And as the trial is happening, Clodius's mob literally bursts into the trial, smashes their way into the trial, smashes up everything in the trial, beats up the judge, smashes up the court, and chases all the people off. This is a level of violence and brutality in Rome that has not been seen before. And a level of just naked, bold aggression and violence that most people in Rome would never have the, the chutzpah to do because there would be such an outcry about it. Clodius is a wild character, though, and he does not care. And astoundingly, and this is the biggest thing from all this, it works. The tactic works of busting up this trial because the trial is abandoned completely. No one ever comes back to it. And during all this violence and all this smashing of the court, Caesar, who is still just perched outside of Rome waiting and watching, says nothing. 
says nothing to stop this, says nothing to condemn Clodius, sits there and watches. So a little bit ominous from Caesar. Next, Clodius goes after Cicero. He has helped out the triumvirate. He has helped out Caesar. It's time for him to focus on his personal revenge, his true passion in life. And yes, he had promised Cicero that he would not prosecute him for putting the Catiline conspirators to death without a trial. But what he does do is he passes a law stating that any citizen found guilty of putting another citizen to death shall be sent into exile. So it's not exactly attacking directly at Cicero, but this law is obviously designed to go after Cicero. And what's more is the law is retroactive, meaning that it applies to things that happened before the law was put in place. Laws that are retroactive are almost always nefarious, almost always are you know, engaged in some sort of mischief to try to get at somebody. And Cicero is the clear target of this law. And at some point during all this, the Senate holds a meeting outside of Rome so that Caesar can attend. And at this meeting, Caesar showed only limited support for Clodius. He reminds everyone that he had been against the executing the conspirators to begin with. Remember, him and Cato had that big battle in the, in the Senate where they're going back and forth. And Caesar had been delivered a love letter, and Cato thought it was a letter from the conspirators and demanded Caesar hand it over. Caesar handed it over, and of course, it was a love letter from Cato's half-sister to Caesar. And Cato famously threw it back and said, take it back, you drunk. Well, that whole episode was where Caesar was arguing for leniency on these people caught in the conspiracy and saying that we should not put them to death, we should have a trial for them, but in the meantime, we can hold them in various towns of Italy and hold them under lock and key. Cato was against that, so was Cicero, and the Optimates won the day on that and ended up putting these guys to death. So Caesar reminds everyone that, hey, he was never for putting these guys to death to begin with. That being said, he felt that retroactive laws passed specifically to attack Cicero were wrong. <laughs> so he, he's not for this law, but at the same time, he reminds everybody his position on it. And Cicero is really in a panic right now. He knows that Clodius is coming for him. So around this time, Caesar offers a helping hand. And again, he offers Cicero a place in the triumvirate to make it, I don't know, what would that be, a, a quadumvirate? <laughs> but he offers him a place in the current triumvirate. And if not that, if Cicero doesn't want that, at least a place on his staff in Gaul as a legate. Either option would leave Cicero safe from Clodius because either he's with Caesar and his army, in which Clodius is in Rome and can't touch him, or he's part of the triumvirate, in which they have an immense amount of power to protect him. In all this, one like I get the feeling that it feels like Caesar is, yes, offering... Cicero a hand up, a helping hand with his left hand, but what, he's also simultaneously beating on him with his right hand because it was Caesar who let Clodius off the leash, and he didn't do it for no reason. He did it to get at Cicero, so Caesar's kind of, he's caused this problem in Cicero's life and then offers him a helping hand out of it. it it's kind of a dubious thing to do. I mean, really smart politicking, I guess, but Cicero's having none of it, and Cicero turns him down on, on both offers. Also, it helps Caesar that Rome is focusing on the legality of Cicero's consulship now because this distracts him from focusing on the legality or, or questionable legality of Caesar's consulship. And even the Senate offers Cicero an extraordinary legateship which would allow him to get out of Rome and be governor of some province 
They created it just for him, just so that he could escape Clodius, because pretty much everyone's on Cicero's side, but they won't lift much of a finger to help him because they're afraid of the Claudii and all the power that they have. But Cicero turns this down too. Why? I don't know. I don't know if it's stubbornness. I don't know if he didn't want to back down to Clodius. He seems to have felt that he needed to stand his ground. It could also be that Cicero, he's always a homebody. He doesn't like leaving Rome. Whenever he does, it seems like it's a big travesty to him. So he may have just not wanted to leave his home. And it soon becomes clear to Cicero that he can't rely on any of his colleagues to help protect him. Yes, they tell him they're on his side, but nobody will do anything to actually help them. Too many of them are connected to the Claudii in some way. And so Cicero begins behaving erratically. Appian, one of our primary ancient sources, says, quote, He, meaning Cicero, put on miserable clothing and threw himself down, covered in filth and squalor, in front of those he met in the streets without even being ashamed of bothering people who knew nothing of the matter, so that thanks to his inappropriate behavior, he became a figure of fun rather than an object of pity, end quote. And what he's saying in all that is Cicero is just throwing, he's going through the streets dressing in haggard robes, growing out his facial hair, and just throwing himself at the feet of random people that have no concept of why he's doing this or who he is, and are just they're just bewildered by this. And so because of all this, rather than pitying him, a lot of the city begins to think that he's just this object of humor, this ridiculous person. But it should be said that some of this behavior that Cicero's doing, the changing into rags and, and walking through the city and bemoaning his bad luck and... and asking people for help, this is common in Rome among aristocrats that are facing some kind of hardship, specifically a trial. So it's not so far out of the norm, but it seems that Cicero wasn't doing this to people that could help him, just random people in the street, which the mobs of Rome found very funny. But soon Clodius puts a stop even to that. And Cicero eventually couldn't even walk the streets without Clodius's thugs throwing stones and mud and, and even excrement at him, meaning poop at him. And Plutarch says, quote, And so, as an accused man, and in danger of the result, he changed his dress and went around with his hair untrimmed, in the attire of a suppliant to beg the people's grace. But Clodius met him in every corner, having a band of abusive and daring fellows about him, who derided Cicero for his change of dress and humiliation, and often, by throwing dirt and stones at him, interrupted his supplications to the people. End quote. So very similar to what Appian said, but he also adds in that Clodius isn't even content to allow him to humiliate himself like that, and they just start throwing rocks and mud and, and, and all sorts of things at him, and chase him out of the streets and make fun of him the whole time. But despite all this, Cicero does have some kind of support. He can't rely on anyone to do anything concrete for him, but they're happy to do shows of support that don't really do anything, just kind of show that they support him, but they're not going to put their neck on the line for him. And Plutarch actually says that 20,000 equestrians, that's the, the business class of Rome, the knights, not the knights in, in the medieval sense, but Roman equestrians were more mercantile class, the middle class. About 20,000 of them all change their dress with Cicero to start wearing dirty rags just like Cicero is to show that they're in solidarity with him. That's a lot of people. So he has a good amount of support, but nobody's willing to stand up to Clodius and his gangs. And the Senate even meets and attempts to change their dress too, just like the equestrians did. 
But the consuls who are on the side of the triumvirate and who Clodius had apparently bought off in some way prevent them from doing this and stop this meeting. Well, not only do they stop, they, they try to put an end to the meeting and they're probably getting ready to, but Clodius isn't content to allow that to happen. And Clodius surrounds the Senate while they're meeting about this whole idea of them all dressing like Cicero. He surrounds the Senate with hired thugs and people from his his guilds and they're armed and most of the senators run away tearing their clothes and crying and are scared of Clodius and his gangs. This is wild for Rome. The idea that one person, a young senator, is surrounding Senate meetings with armed thugs that are only loyal to him and chasing the meeting out and and not letting the Senate operate as it normally does. It's just stunning. Like, where is Cato with all the energy he always summons to combat Caesar and to stop Caesar from, from doing things that he feels are wrong in the Republic? Where is Cato now? Why is he not putting up as much of a stink against Clodius? It's just very confusing. And Cicero's friend Hortensius, who would actually, this man Hortensius had been his greatest rival in the law courts, because that's where Cicero had made his name, was as a great orator in the law courts. And before Cicero was king of the law courts, Hortensius had been king of the law courts before him. He doesn't really come back into our story that often, but I just figured I'd mention who he was. But he actually tries to defend Cicero in the streets at one point against the gangs of Clodius who are harassing him and throwing stuff at him. And for his trouble, he's mugged by Clodius's gang. They literally beat him up. And he, this man, I believe, I might be speaking out of turn on this, but I believe he is an ex-consul Hortensius. Or at the very least, he's a prominent senator. So Clodius has no fear. Nobody's off limits to him. And eventually, even Cicero's friends advise that he flee the city, if only temporarily until things calm down. And it should be mentioned that Pompey had advised Cicero, or had comforted him before all this, when Cicero was nervous about the threats that Clodius was making, that he would get revenge on Cicero. Pompey and Cicero had always had some kind of relationship with each other, some kind of, I don't know if you'd call it a friendship, because it's all politics, but... Cicero had gone to Pompey, and Pompey said he had nothing to fear because if Clodius tried to raise a hand against Cicero, Pompey, the great general, would stop him with either men that are loyal to him or or he himself would stop Clodius. And so Cicero had been counting on this. But let's remember, it was Pompey and Caesar who let Clodius off the leash that conducted the ceremony that allowed him to be adopted by a plebeian and therefore become a plebeian and run for the tribuneship and now get this revenge on Caesar. So not only is Pompey not defending him, he's the cause of the issue. And Cicero tries to go to Pompey now and ask for his help again, and Pompey slips out of the city and tries to hide in one of his country retreats. Cicero follows him out there and tries to see him because he's desperate, and Pompey, seeing that Cicero's at his front door, slips out the back door to avoid being confronted by him, probably because he's so ashamed of his behavior and, and how he's kind of two-timed Cicero. And finally, Cicero just sees no other option out there. Nobody's willing to stick their neck out for him. Nobody's willing to help him. And so he leaves Rome in the middle of the night on foot to avoid detection along with a few close friends. So he slips out middle of the night and this is not a happy moment for Cicero. He falls into a deep depression over this. He feels like his life is over. His entire life is built around 
being a Roman and, and being a, a senator in Rome and all the political traditions of Rome. And now he's severed from that, perhaps forever, for all he knows. And the next morning when Clodius heard this, he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe Cicero had, had backed down like this and fled Rome. And I have a quote for you here from Tom Holland in his book Rubicon, where he talks about Clodius' reaction to Cicero's fleeing. Quote, As the news began to spread throughout the waking city, Clodius was as stunned as everyone else. In an ecstasy of triumphalism, his mobs surged up the Palatine and occupied Cicero's house. The wretched exile's mansion, his pride and joy, the most visible and public mark of his rank, was trashed. Then the demolition men moved in. Watched by a packed form, the house was torn to pieces, block by block. While next to it, casting the rubble in its imposing shadow, Clodius' mansion stood proud and inviolate. So Clodius is not content just to chase Cicero out of Rome. He then goes and ransacks his house and demolishes it and has it block by block taken down. Some sources say burned down. And Clodius is his next door neighbor. And he uses some of this land to even extend his own property and acquires the land himself. And how is any of this allowed? How is nobody in Rome stopping this? It's wild. But Clodius isn't done there. Cicero has been making fun of him for a few years now. So Clodius is, is very salty at Cicero. And he rushes through some legislation that officially exiles Cicero. So before, Clodius is threatening him, and Cicero felt he had to leave because of the threats and because of the abuse. Now, Clodius makes it official and says that, he passes a law that says that Cicero cannot live within 400 miles of Rome, and that anyone within that distance in Italy is to forbid him fire and water. And here's the kicker, a thing that only Clodius would think of. Clodius then begins to construct on the site of Cicero's house, or the site where his house was, a temple to liberty. So he builds a temple to liberty on the spot where Cicero's house used to be, or at least starts the construction, almost saying, wow, like, look at this, I've liberated Rome from the awful Cicero who puts citizens to death. What's more, and this is a thing that only Clodius would think of, if Cicero ever does return, it's going to be very tough for him to rebuild his house in that same spot if Clodius has built a temple there, because it's not so easy to demolish a temple and say, I'm going to build my personal mansion here. It's going to be a lot tougher to get the say-so from the religious people of Rome to do that. So this is just rubbing salt in the wound. And if all this wasn't enough, if Clodius hadn't already defeated Cicero and proven that he was the more powerful person and proven that he would get revenge on him, Clodius, I guess for him it wasn't enough because he tracks down Cicero's other houses. Cicero was famous for having villas all throughout the countryside. He loved collecting them. He was often in tons of debt because he had all these places, but he, he was so proud of them and he would write to his friends about them. Clodius tracked many or even all of them down and destroys all of them in the countryside. This man is crazy. Talk about a bad enemy to have. For Clodius, it's all personal. Nothing is just politics. It's all personal. And Cicero personally destroyed his career at one point by testifying against him in the case of 
Nabonidea and stopped him from being able to become consul and made a laughing stock of him in Rome. And then in the preceding years began to make fun of him and his sisters and make fun of the rumors about their incestuous relationships. So Clodius is just, I mean, this is a guy that sees slights in the smallest of things. And this was not a small thing Cicero had done to him. And around the same time that Cicero is fleeing Rome in the night, Caesar gets news of an impending crisis and therefore an opportunity in one of his provinces. And he finally ends his spider-like stillness where he's sitting and pulling the strings of politics in Rome from, from just outside the city. And he suddenly rushes north, traveling at a staggering 90 miles per day on average. That number always blows my mind. He traveled 90 miles a day on average in a time where all you could do is ride a horse. And think about the, the, the dirty details of that. If you're riding a horse 90 miles a day, how saddle sore do you get? How do you stop to eat food? I guess you're eating food on the saddle every day. You would think that you would get so sore from riding that fast every day and that the idea that anyone could even keep up with him is astounding. But even Caesar's contemporaries were always amazed at how quickly he traveled. But he rushes north like this and is a crisis or, like I said, an opportunity. But what is this crisis and why is Caesar in such a rush? You'll have to tune in next time on the March of History. But before we go today, let me just remind you to please, if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed the podcast in general, leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. We would love it if it would be five stars. Share the podcast with others, people that you know that enjoy history or people that you think would enjoy this podcast. We would love it if you would share it with them. And also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get notifications when new episodes come out. And you can follow our Instagram at the March of History. That's at the March of History. Tons of cool pictures of European history and a lot of the maps of the places we talk about and statues of the people we talk about. Our Twitter is at March underscore history. I still have not done much with this. Twitter just confuses me, but eventually I'll figure it out. And the email is history at gmail.com. Email us with any feedback. We'd love to hear it, good or bad. And then that's it. Until next time on the March of History. <laughs>